Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship is the English ministry of Korean World Mission Baptist Church located in Richardson, Texas. We hold our Sunday services at 11 a.m. and have a time of fellowship and Bible study at 1 p.m. This week's sermon is in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 24, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Good morning, everyone. How are we? Oh, we look full today. It's good. If you guys have your Bibles, would you please turn to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3. I think we have actually made it to page 2 of the Bible. We are on page two. Genesis chapter three is on page two of the Pew Bibles, if you need it. We're starting in verse one, and we will go through all the way to the end of chapter three. So Genesis chapter three, verses one through 24, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and, and she also, I'm sorry, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and, his, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. So at Zoe Fellowship here, every week you will hear the gospel. Every week here, you will hear the gospel. As long as I am here, and as long as this is a Bible-believing church, we should hear the gospel every week when we come here, right? And the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? That uh, we rebelled against a holy and righteous and just God, and out of his love for us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf on the cross, And then he rose again on the third day, and he ascended into heaven, where he reigns right now, ruling over all things. And one day he'll return to judge the living and the dead. That's what we call the gospel. Okay, that's the content of the gospel. If you went through our membership, we asked you this question, what is the gospel? Because as members of Zoe Fellowship, we expect you to be able to articulate the gospel to somebody. If someone were to ask, what is the gospel? Would you be able to articulate it to them? Would you be able to share the gospel with somebody? And that's what we want to know. We want, to, we want all our members to be equipped with the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now, that is the content of the gospel. So what does the word gospel exactly mean? The, the Greek word is euangelion, and it means good news, right? The gospel is good news. And like all good news, uh, it, g- good news is only good in the context of a bad environment, correct? So, sir, your cancer is in remission, That's good news. Why? Because the bad news was the man had cancer. And so if it's in remission, good news. It's gospel, right? And so this this word, good news, gospel, would often be used in in, uh, ancient times when um, a country was warring against another country and a soldier would be sent back from battle to the kingdom and and say, there's good news. We've defeated our enemies. The king will come back in victory and we can celebrate our freedom together in this kingdom. That's good news. That was the gospel. They would proclaim the good news to this kingdom. And so, we have this good news in the context of bad news. And so, we've been in Genesis now for the past, uh, today's the third week. And we've been talking a little bit about Moses and the Israelites a little bit, about how they would read this and how would they interpret this. What kind of questions were they asking? And so the first week, when we were just looking at Genesis 1, you can imagine these Moses, Moses and the Hebrew people, they're coming out of Egypt uh, after living as slaves their whole lives, and they're asking Moses, the, the, these, the, this generation of people, and they're asking Moses, uh, so who is this God that you're claiming has freed us? Who is this God? And that was the question that Genesis 1 answered for us. Who is God? God is the creator of all things, everything and every, all things, everyone and everything, and that his goodness is reflected in everything that he has created, right? He created all things good, and so his goodness, his faithfulness, his love is, is, is in everything that he has created. And then last week, we were in Genesis 2, and it sought to answer the question of, who are we? I mean, you can imagine these Hebrew people, they're in the desert, they're like, okay, so we're not Egyptians anymore, we're not slaves anymore, then what are we? Who are we? 
And Genesis 2, Genesis 2 answers this question of, we're family of God. You're children of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. You're in covenant relationship with him. He loves you, and he will be faithful to you forever. He is in permanent relationship with you. You are a human being loved by God. You are created by him, right? So then you can imagine then, these Hebrew people, they're asking Moses, okay, so let me get this straight. God created everything. He's our creator. Apparently, he loves us. He freed us from the slavery. Okay, so I can see that. So, but he created everything good, right? He's a good God. And then, you know, I'm discovering, okay, I'm a creature. I'm created. I have purpose. I can have joy in him. Then, why was I born into slavery? How have I only known slavery and oppression my entire life? How is it that I uh, lived under the oppression of a cruel pharaoh and only now I'm free? And now, not only am I not in some sort of good place, I'm wandering a desert with all these other people. How did we get here? This is maybe the question that the Israelites are starting to seek. How did, how did we get here? How did we enter into this broken world? And this is what Genesis 3 seeks to answer today. And so in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Already we are introduced with a new character, introduced to a new character, the serpent, right? We know that he was uh, a creature that God had made, but a clue here is that it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, right? So what does it mean to be crafty? For us, there's a negative connotation. The translation crafty means, oh, he's manipulative and evil and dark and those things. But the Hebrew word itself doesn't have a negative connotation. It just means that the, the serpent was smarter. He was more intelligent than maybe any other beast of the field. Now, should this serpent have, ha, uh, have any intelligence at all? That's the question. And we can already know by the next sentence that, he, that the serpent is an aberration in the natural order that God has created, right? It says that the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, why is that weird? Because the serpent is talking. Serpents don't talk, right? Only human beings and God are the only people who have spoken at all at this point in the story. And suddenly, here's the serpent who is talking. This is unusual, and so already, we should have some sort of suspicion towards this character, the serpent. And the serpent, he tells the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any fruit of the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So here we have the serpent already inserting suspicion and doubt between the woman and her creator, did God actually say this? Right? This is like the beginning of any temptation that we've all been through. That if we know God, any temptation starts with this question. What does God say about this? Right? And we may answer that question really quickly, maybe because we just don't know. Oh, I don't know. And then you just do it. What? But any temptation would start with this sort of question. Did God actually say that I can't do this? What's the line? Right? This is about, I think this is the question I hear uh, from college students especially. Where's the line? Am I crossing it if I do this? What if I do this? Am I crossing the line then? It's a very common question. Did God actually say these things, right? Now at this point, the woman should have just walked away. The serpent starts hissing and talking to the woman. The woman should be like, whoa, okay, that's not supposed to happen. I should not do this, right? But instead, 
She speaks, she dignifies it with a response. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And interestingly, nobody here really gets the exact wording that God gives, right? Nobody actually gets the commandment exactly right. Even Eve says, um, adds in, neither shall you touch it. God doesn't actually ever say that in his commandment, to not touch that tree. But the woman, for whatever reason, inserted it in. Interestingly. Now the serpent responds to the woman in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent straight up lies to this woman. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, the problem with that is it's completely opposite of what God told mankind. It actually says the exact opposite. You will surely die. Dying you will die. You, will, you are most certainly going to die if you eat from this tree. And the serpent says, nah. You're not going to die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And there it is, right? The core of all sin and all temptation is this, is getting at the temptation that we want to be God. We want to be like God. This is the core of every sin and every temptation is our uh, rebellion against God and trying to take his throne and his crown and keep it for ourselves. We want, and the irony, of course, of all this is that they were like God. God created them in his image, right? To be like God. But now mankind is trying to be like God when they already were. They had everything they needed. His presence, his joy, his purpose, his pleasure, all that was there. And they all gave it all up to be more like him when they already were. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What exactly is sin? Right? What is sin, if we were to try and define it, right? What is the line, in a sense, is what we're asking, right? From this story, at least from what we've read so far, I think we can come to this conclusion. Sin is when we decide what is good for ourselves. And then also, sin is when we do not trust God. Okay, it's almost a two-part, like two sides of a coin. Sin is when we do not trust God, and sin is when we decide what is good for ourselves. Look at what the woman says in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, where else have we seen this sort of language, seeing something was good? We see that in chapter 1 in creation, what God does. Let there be light, the Lord, and and the, the, the light appeared, and then the Lord saw it, and it was good. Already we see this coup, what is it, this coup to become God. Even in this woman, she does the thing that God does, sees it and judges for herself. Oh, this is good, even though God has already told her not to eat of it. And then it also shows that we don't trust God. See, what the the serpent is doing is claiming that God is keeping some sort of joy, some sort of uh, something to himself and not sharing it with his creation. Right? 
He's, he's trying to keep some sort of joy and happiness from you that maybe we deserve. And so if God's not going to do it, we'll do it ourselves. And they take, take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's some sort of maybe wisdom or understanding that God is not showing us. And then stunningly, we discover that the husband was with her the whole time. Right? This isn't just the serpent and Eve. Apparently, the husband's just like standing there with her, seeing all this happen. In fact, maybe the husband should have been the one to be like, no, don't talk to the snake. Don't talk to this talking snake. This is weird. We should get out of here while we can. Or maybe even tell the woman, correct her on her theology. Right? He said, neither shall you touch it. No, 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 no. The Lord did not say that necessarily. But he did say, we will die. Surely we will die. What we have here is this passivity from this husband. Men, can I talk to you directly for a second? Do not practice passivity. That is not what we were created for. We were created to take responsibility, to take initiative, to have leadership in the home and the church. It makes me really sad that when we have more people serving our church that are women, not that I don't want women to serve, they should, but it's sad when we have more women than men. Men should be the one leading our church and their homes. And when we have passive husband, husbands, passive men, then we have the brokenness right in front of us that has been created in the garden. And it says this, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were Naked. Um, this word naked or nude is uh, actually in the Hebrew is actually really similar to the word that is describing the serpent uh, when he says that he was crafty. And again, crafty means shrewdness, maybe. Right? He's smart. He has knowledge. And then, they, and then they're saying that the eyes of both were open and they were nude. So in a sense, in their seeking of shrewdness, the man and the woman, mankind, in their attempt to become shrewd like God, they actually just, all the, the only knowledge that they gain is that they're nude, right? That they're naked, that they're vulnerable. And it causes them to become shameful. And so what do they do? They sew fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths to cover their shame, their nakedness. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What we see here in these few verses is that sin corrupts everything. Right? Sin corrupts everything. It, gives, it, it corrupts us inwardly and it corrupts everything around us externally. Right? It, gives us, it leads us to feel a, a sense of shame and guilt, which leads to hiding from God when we're in his presence. Instead of joining him and enjoying his presence like we were created to do, instead we hide in shame. And then it, it causes friction and corruption in our relationships. Look how man blames the woman, the woman that you gave me, right? He's blaming God at the same time. He's blaming the woman and God. 
And then the woman blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me. And so I ate. It's really interesting, and it's a really ironic reminder of God's original intention. Woman was supposed to be a helper for man, but man rejects God's gift. The woman you gave me, maybe they're not compatible. Maybe she isn't fit for me. Look what she made me do. She made me mess up. That's essentially what this man is doing. That's what passivity does. And the woman listens to the voice of the serpent, which is completely backwards, right? She's supposed to help, help the man rule over all creation. But instead, the woman listens to the voice of the serpent. And so she is deceived, and so she eats. This is how sin corrupts everything. It corrupts, corrupts our insides, our outside, our relationships, our environment. And in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you, sh- and you shall bruise his heel. Um, God will judge all sin. That's what we're going to see from these curses, ultimately. I just read the curse of, on the serpent, but what this is telling us is God will judge all sin. Now, the word curse here isn't like avada kedavra, like killing curse, right? Like in Harry Potter or some wizard curse. It means judgment. So when you are cursed, it means that you have been judged and a judgment is coming to you. And so, in the, the way that God has judged the serpent is to say that the serpent will eat dust for the rest of his life. And eating dust was, has this connotation of being conquered, right? That your face is in the dust and some, the victor has his uh, foot on his neck and he's just eating dust on the ground because of being totally conquered by the enemy. And so this serpent is destined to be conquered. Right? And it explains this in verse 15. The offspring of the woman will bruise its head and he will bruise his heel. And we'll go a little more into that, but we can see it. You're cursed to lose. That's what God is um, telling the serpent. You are cursed to lose. You will not come out of this alive. And then verse 16, the curse on the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So we have multiplication of pain and childbearing, and then a desire is given to be contrary to her husband, who was supposed to be leading her, to have authority over her. And so the blessing of children, the command that God gives to all people to be fruitful and multiply, that's not as much of a blessing anymore, it seems. And then the blessing of a harmonious marriage will now become a marriage of conflict and fighting and friction. This is the curse on the woman, that they'll have birth pangs, right? pain in birth and childbirth, and then marriage that isn't perfect like it was and could have been. And then verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God judges man's sin by cursing the land that he is meant to work 
and keep and enjoy. Right? In, in chapter 2, we see this command from God given to the man that you are to work the garden and to keep it. That's his purpose. That's the pleasure that he would find. That, that This is how he would enjoy God's good gifts. But instead, now, this garden, this ground that he was supposed to work and keep will now fight against him. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field And then by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, meaning everything you'll have to earn, right? Nothing will be a gift for you anymore. Everything you have to earn by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. And then you will die, right? Surely you will die. That's that's what God told them when uh, he told them not to eat from the knowledge of the uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that surely if you eat from this tree, you will die. And he says it right here. You will return to the ground, for out of it you are taking, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. You can see in the curse that their sin, Adam and Eve's sin, was a complete reversal of the order that God had created in the garden. Right? Man listened to the voice of his wife when he was supposed to be leading his wife instead of the voice of God. And then woman was supposed to rule with her husband over, um, as his helper over the living creatures. That, but this creature... The serpent deceived the woman. And so you see this reversal in the order of creation, this hierarchy of creation. This wasn't supposed to be this way. And then verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of, the lo- of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of man's sin... He is sent into exile out of the garden sanctuary, right? We, we discovered last week that the, the Garden of Eden is really a temple and that Adam and Eve were um, its first priests, the first priest of God. And yet because they failed, they are exiled from this garden temple and out of God's presence. And the fellowship that they had with God is now broken. Fellowship with God is now broken because of their sin. In the effort, the irony is that in the effort to be like God or to be God, mankind is no longer with God. And then they're sent, and then there's a guard, a cherubim, and sort of like a, a creature, this supernatural creature who's holding this flaming sword on the east gate of Eden. In, uh, when we read further into Genesis, we'll see that the further you go east, the further into exile you're going. That's where Babylon is. East is where Babylon is. East is where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And then going west would be returning to the promised land. And so when they're putting uh, a guard at the east, the Eden is to say that you're no longer welcome here. You are now in exile. And so what do we learn from all this? From chapter 3. We're looking at this. And we just see a lot of brokenness, a lot of sin. What are we, what are we picking up from this? How, how, the question was, how did we get here? And what we see is though sin results in guilt and judgment, the promise of hope still stands in the cross. Right? 
Though sin results in the guilt in guilt and judgment, the promise of hope still stands in the cross. Now, how is that so? Because all we learned at this point was that the core of all sin is to be like God. We learned that sin is not trusting in God and trying to decide for ourselves what is good, right? We're trying to make ourselves autonomous from God. We learned that sin just corrupts everything around us, inward and out. We're rotting inside, and everything around us is rotting and decaying. And then finally, we know that judgment is coming because of all this sin. That God, in the, in the end, will ultimately judge all sin, every rebellion that has been against him. He will judge, and he will bring uh, ra- his wrath upon so then where, this is the bad environment, the bad context. What is the good news then? What is the good news in the, in the, in the midst of this bad context? In Genesis 3.15, theologians and scholars call this the, the proto-evangelion. The proto-evangelion, which means the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So how is that good news? Why is that considered the first gospel? And it's first as in it's in the beginning of the book, page one, or page two, I guess, technically. Page two of the Bible, we already see the good news of the gospel. How do we see it? Well, let's interpret this a little bit, right? Who is the offspring of the serpent, or who is the serpent, really? We just know it's just some weird aberration in the garden in the natural order of things. Who Really, who is the serpent? We get some clues from the New Testament, okay? Revelations, chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not this ancient serpent is the same as the one in the garden, right? But for us, it's like the snakeskin fits. If we see a snakeskin shit on the ground, we should maybe assume there's a snake. And this seems to fit very well. It's an ancient serpent, and he's a deceiver. This is exactly what he does. He deceives the woman. And so it wouldn't be too far-fetched for us to say, oh, maybe there's a satanic influence in the garden, On this serpent specifically, we know that the the serpent may have been created by God and that he was good because that's what God said, but maybe the serpent, without it showing in the text, we don't know, this is just conjecture, that maybe that the Satan somehow influenced this serpent to deceive the woman and be like this, to start talking, give it the ability to talk. So maybe, and then Romans 16 verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, right? That sounds familiar too, right? He shall bruise your head, and, he, and, he, and you shall bruise his heel, right? So the offspring of the serpents, his head will be bruised, it'll be crushed. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, remember? He will eat dust, crushed like under the foot of the victor. This is what it means to be conquered. And so his destiny, the serpent's destiny, is that he will be crushed, he will be defeated, he will eat dust. And so the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We can kind of, with these verses, come to the conclusion maybe that this serpent had a satanic influence, that it was Satan or the devil. And so there's that. But who is the offspring of the woman? Now, this is a good question. Who is the offspring of the woman? Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, 
It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, one offspring, and to your offspring. And he says, who is Christ? Christ is the offspring. Jesus is the offspring. Now, he's talking about Abraham, but we'll find out later that the line from Adam leads straight to Abraham. So we can assume that the woman, the woman's offspring is actually Christ as well. He's an offspring of the woman. And so the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent of Satan is Jesus. He's Jesus. So then we know that Christ will, will conquer Satan, will defeat him, will crush him under his feet. How will he do that? How will Jesus become the victor? Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So because of this tree in this garden, they take of it and eat of it, they become cursed. They're judged they are being judged by God. He, God will bring judgment because of this tree. But God will also bring judgment on this other tree, the cross, where Jesus hung. And he will become a curse. He will be judged for us in our place, for our sin and our rebellion against him. And so that's step one. For how, how will the serpent's head be bruised? How will, how will Satan be crushed under the feet of the God of peace? It's through sacrifice, through Jesus dying on the cross and taking the judgment that we deserve on himself. And then how else? Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, this is Adam, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so because of Adam's guilt, we are all guilty of sin. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The one man, Jesus, his obedience, through his obedience, we will all become righteous by faith in him. So these are the two coins or the sides of the coins right that he will take judgment on himself jesus will take judgment on himself the curse on himself and then he will perfectly obey he will not fall for any temptation from satan we know that jesus was tempted by satan in the wilderness when he began his ministry right and so he will not fail like adam failed as our representative jesus is our representative he will not fail he will obey perfectly all the way to his death and so because of that, when we believe in him, when we trust in him, doing the thing that we don't do, that's what sin is, right? Well, we said that we don't trust God and we want to decide what's good for ourselves. When we trust then, right, trust in God finally through what Jesus has done and finally see that what he has done is good because he says it's good, only then can we be saved that the head of the this, of this serpent will be crushed. And it will bruise his heel in the sense he will die. Yes, he will die a gruesome and painful death on our behalf. He will suffer, but he will rise again. He will come back from the dead on the third day. And he will, yes, one day judge the world. But for us, right, God will judge all sin. For us, our sins, the ones who believe our sins have been judged already on Jesus. But when Jesus returns later in the future, then will the final judgment happen. Those who believed in him will be saved. They'll experience the fullness of salvation. And those who don't believe, they will be cursed. They will receive God's just judgment on them. So what does that mean for us today? 
I think what it means for us is to, number one, understand the heinousness of sin, the depth of sin in our hearts. It corrupts everything. The heart is deceitful above all things. That's what the Bible tells us. We are prone to wander. We, re- we, we sing that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And one of my favorite verses in that talks about my fallenness. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We feel that old flesh in us fighting against the spirit of God in us who is trying to help us to obey. So we should know the heinousness, the, the, the depth of our sin and be able to fight it with the gospel, the good news, right? And that's the second thing we should take from this is that there is good news. There is always hope. And so we should be able to understand and articulate the gospel, not only to others, but to ourselves on a daily basis. You wake up with shame and guilt from maybe the night before or something that you did a long time ago that you haven't shaken off yet. But the gospel is hope for you. Jesus Christ, he died for you. That sin is gone. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus. At the end of chapter 3, God uh, makes garments for Adam and Eve with skins, meaning he sacrificed an animal. And he took the skins off and he covered them with it. So no longer do you have to work and do good works to try and cover up your own sin like fig leaves to cover your shame and your nakedness. No longer do you have to do that yourself. God has made the sacrifice for you, done the work himself, and covered you. Covered your shame. Covered your unrighteousness. Christianity is not for us to try and become better people, quote-unquote. It's not for us to just you know, modify our behavior to be, become a good person. That's, what, that's not what being a Christian is. I hope that's not why you come to church. To, it just, it's part of your checkmark to become a good person. We come to church and we, what Christianity is about is following Jesus and to be, be made more like him, to understand that we no longer are under the, the, the law where we have to try and please God through our good works. Rather, we are under his grace. He's given grace to us. He's done the work for us. He's obeyed for us. And so in love, not out of, not out of um, obligation, but out of love, now we follow him and we obey his commandments because we love him and we trust him and he, that he knows what's good for us. We don't decide what's good for ourselves anymore. So my encouragement to you today is to trust in God, to repent of your sin, to run away, flee from sin and temptation in your life. And to know the gospel, the good news, that Jesus loves you, he died for you, he rose again, and he'll come to judge all sin again. Let me pray for us.